We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. This is about heart. It's about character. To play on a Denver back-to-back, you guys have been in the league, know that's a tough back-to-back. The intensity that you guys played with for 48 minutes was outstanding. Okay? That kind of stuff is going to pay off. I told you, we want to get better every month. And this is a great start. That team is supposed to win a title. Okay? So what does that say about us? We got a chance to be really good. But we got to continue to do a little things. Okay? Everything counts. Everything counts. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns Podcast. It is great to record podcasts after games like that. I'm so excited to talk. I'm uh, one of the co-hosts here of this podcast, Mike V. Hill. Of course, I'm here as every episode with Sam Cooper. Sam, how are you doing? Mike V. Hill, how does it feel to be a host of a podcast about the best team in the NBA? <laughs> it's nice. We've got we to gotta relish it while it lasts. we got to cherish this. It's really nice. We have so much to talk about, but before we even get into it, I just wanted to recap everything that kind of happened in the last few days. After the Sacramento game, DeAndre Ayton was drug tested and subsequently suspended for 25 games for testing positive for a banned diuretic. Then the Suns traveled to Denver, the most difficult place to play in the NBA, on the first night of a back-to-back and playing against the team with the best record in the NBA last season, and they lost in overtime in a hard-fought game by one point without DeAndre Ayton. Then, less than 24 hours later... They played the hottest team in the NBA, the Los Angeles Clippers, without Aiton and now without Rubio due to a bone bruise that he sustained in the overtime game in Denver. 
and one decidedly where they led for 45 of the 48 minutes of that game. Let's talk about that Clippers game first. That was phenomenal beginning to end. What did you think, Sam? It Exactly what you said. It was phenomenal beginning to end. I thought the Suns had a good performance uh, in Denver. They really tried their hardest. They gave Denver enough opportunities to run away with that game. So I came out of that game not feeling totally convinced. There was still something there that felt, you know, a little bit like a fluke. And then you go into the next day. You're worried about Ricky Rubio. We got the confirmation that Rubio was out with the bone bruise, so he wouldn't be playing. I had no idea who was going to start at point guard. I was surprised when it was Javon Carter. I thought maybe Tyler Johnson would get the nod. But safe to say, even without Paul George, didn't go into last night's game thinking that the Suns were going to walk away with a win. And it was convincing. It was a convincing performance where virtually... Not virtually. Every single player who played minutes for the Phoenix Suns, I thought, did a phenomenal job. To say that there were any weaknesses at all really would be nitpicking, and I'm sure we'll get to that eventually. But just, it, you know, Devin Booker had 30 points and 8 assists, coming off one of his worst shooting performances of his career. He was obviously the engine of the Suns' offense, but all of the role players around him did exactly what they were brought to this team to do. And top down, it was just so encouraging. Yeah, I think... What was really encouraging to me, and we talked about it after the Sacramento game, there were times last season where, I mean, the Suns clearly had a game plan, right? They, they had a plan going into a lot of the games that they were playing to win the game. But because of how bad the team was and maybe how badly it was communicated to the players, it was difficult to even understand the game plans of uh, Igor Kokoskov and the Suns last season. I'm not trying to point any blame here because there's better players on the team. And of course, as we all know, it's a a theme of this podcast now. That makes a huge difference. But now with the Suns, the game plan in the Sacramento game was clear. It was essentially limit three-point attempts and limit transition, basically. The game plan in the Denver game was clear. Uh, Try and stop Jokic as much as possible and do not let backdoor cuts happen over and over and over again. And then the game plan in this Clippers game was clear. It was essentially turn Kawhi Leonard into a point guard, don't allow him to just beat us up on the inside and uh, focus the defense around him and try and limit shooting as much as possible. And then, of course, with the Clippers game, they also made 17 three-pointers, which is a nice, nice thing for the Suns. As we talked about live by the three, die by, die by the three before, uh, but without DeAndre Ayton, I think you don't have that interior presence that you're going to have uh, you know, with him playing. So those shooting, the three-pointers matter a lot more. They have to hit threes. But I thought yes. it was really nice that you could actually recognize coaching in a way that we haven't really been able to do in a long time. Very impressive by Monty Williams. Very imp- impressive by the Suns. And I thought the way they defended Kawhi Leonard was fascinating in this game. It was fascinating. They really treated Kawhi. I think they gave him the Devin Booker treatment of what Booker was seeing a lot of last year. Um, when There was a stretch in the second quarter where... For as good a defender as Mikhail Bridges is uh, overall, he still hasn't put on the weight uh, onto his frame necessary to take a guy like Kawhi Leonard in the post. So there was this stretch in the second quarter where the Clippers were predictably going to Kawhi basically every possession and the Suns had to trap him. They had to double him. Yeah. And... You know, that's something that you get the privilege of doing now. It is important to point out, but you don't get the privilege of doing that when you play the Clippers potentially uh, two or three more times this season when they'll have Paul George. Uh, you know, once Paul George right. and Kawhi Leonard are both in that lineup, you can't you can't double both of those guys. And so we'll see more offense begin to open up for the Clippers. But on the other hand, obviously, the Suns were shorthanded without Rubio and Aiton as well. And with the Suns offense, you know, if we're talking about the lack of Aiton, it's really kind of 
simplified their offense out of necessity. Uh, but but like you were saying, there is a clear game plan there. Dribble, drive, penetration, trying to create open looks from three. Yep. Interestingly enough, I think like, you know, Monty Williams is even doing some old school stuff. Like he wants Devin Booker to be a playmaker out of the post. He mm-hmm. wants him to post up and attack. And because you have the benefit yeah. of not playing a center like DeAndre Ayton, who's going to yep. clog that paint. When Dev- We already knew that Devin Booker was one of the best post players for a non-big man in the NBA. That's already mm-hmm. been a fact for multiple years now. But now you take him. DeAndre Ayton isn't there in the paint to clog it up. Obviously, that means there's no one there to get the offensive rebound either. But multiple times in this game, you had Frank Kaminsky post... Um, spotting up on the wing you had Aaron Bain spotting up on the wing so Booker didn't have to do a turnaround shot didn't have to necessarily uh work that offense he could just pass out for an open three and the Suns capitalized on that multiple times but so yeah I mean it's just very three-point heavy shooting offense I tweeted out recently that um the the most encouraging thing to me above all else last night was that NBA.com tracks how close a defender is uh on contesting a shot for every player on the team and for the Suns overall, 31 of the 43 threes that they attempted last night were wide open. That means there was not a defender within six feet of that shot. That yeah. is 72% of the threes that the Suns took were wide open. Only 44% of the threes the Clippers took were wide open. The Clippers were really struggling to rotate. By the third and fourth quarter, the Suns had absolutely broken apart their defensive scheme. They were running circles around them. They could get any shot they want. I posted a compilation of the threes the Suns made that were wide open to Twitter, but there were so many more I could have posted that were completely wide open threes that they missed. And it's not hard to envision them having an even better shooting game than they did in the future. And if they can do that, they will blow teams out with the amount of open looks they're generating right now. Yeah. I have a whole bunch of stats that I'm going to get to at some point in this podcast that are, of course, small sample size theater, but I think point to what this team is looking like so far. But what was fascinating about the three-pointers being open so often, just like you found in that statistic, was how they created them. And it was so many different ways. You talked about Devin Booker in the post, uh, but without Ricky Rubio in this game and without DeAndre Ayton, they had to have some gravity inside. And Javon Carter, for for all he's good at, and we'll talk about him later, uh, can't really penetrate. He can't really get into the lane and create for other guys. So that means Devin Booker has to do it. But then you have guys like Aaron Baines in the paint and uh, even Frank Kaminsky or Dario Saric catching the ball at the three-pointer, pump faking, and getting into the lane to create three-point shots And, you know, Kelly Oubre, for all the gravity that he brings in his driving, he still doesn't really pass. So he's not exactly (laughs) creating those threes. So for Monty Williams and this team to find that many open threes with the personnel that they're left with without Ricky Rubio and without DeAndre Ayton against what will likely be one of the best, if not the best, defensive team in the NBA I thought was just excellent coaching and really disciplined play. And I think this is a this is probably the biggest thing after 3 games for me. It is that this team has an identity, a real identity, something that we've begged for on this podcast and something that as fans we've wanted for years. And that identity is defense. It's being scrappy. And it's playing smart. That's not a normal thing for a Suns team. It's almost like we took Tyler Johnson and created a team (laughs) identity out of what he does. 
I he, love Tyler Johnson. Man. Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> he's really, it's really the the perfect kind of player that every coach wants coming off the bench because he's just so great. But but more than more than anything else that we're going to talk about, I think uh, after three games, having an identity and and for Monty Williams and his coaching staff being able to point at that identity and being able to fall back on that identity when uh, things like DeAndre Ayton being suspended happen to this team, right? That is a very valuable thing to have. And of course, it's three games, and we're, we're going to preface that right now so we don't have to say it anymore. Small it's three games. sample we know. size, we know. Yeah. But if they there can continue to keep that up throughout the rest of the season... That is a huge change in this team, and I think everyone on the coaching staff will deserve some credit at that point, including James Jones, and even all the way to the top, (laughs) I hate to even say this, with Robert Sarver allowing James Jones to take control, make some changes, and hire Monty Williams, Uh, because changing culture is very difficult, and, and obviously with culture, it takes time, but overall, these three games, very impressed with establishing some sort of identity. Mm-hmm. And and Monty Williams has done a fantastic job with implementing that identity. But I'm glad you mentioned James Jones at the end there because the pieces that he's brought in, everyone on the Suns roster right now that's in the rotation is playing with a fearlessness. And obviously part of that comes from the coaching staff. That's all what .5 offense is about. It's about uh, you catch the ball instant quick decisions, either drive, shoot, or pass. And the personnel that James Jones assembled is just so much more capable of implementing a system like that than what we previously had. You brought up guys like Dario Saric, Frank Kaminsky, pump fake when they receive the ball on the perimeter and can drive in and create open looks for other players. That didn't happen with Dragon Bender. You have guys like Javon Carter, who's been really, a lot of people owe Javon Carter an apology because I think he's been very good (laughs) through the first three games and has been but he he can't miss from three right now. I mean, I don't have the three-point percentage in front of me. I'll look it up in a second. But he's been fearless uh, and taking those threes with confidence. Can you imagine DeAnthony Melton, for as great a defender as he was, pressuring the ball up and down the court 94 feet last year? You can't imagine DeAnthony Melton shooting the ball with that much confidence last year. It yeah. was just impossible to do the sort of things that the Suns are currently doing with the personnel. And the personnel is all credit to uh to james jones and also to jeff bauer and trevor buckstein too but yeah yeah it's a team it's a team and even monty i'm sure had some say in the personnel and, and it's just all of them working together and that's what a real uh culture a, a healthy culture for a team actually looks like it's where everyone's on the same page everyone understands what's needed from everyone else and they all work together to come to some sort of collective goal and that's the goal so i hope they continue to do that i think in this clippers game uh, particularly monty williams was brilliant, <laughs> really brilliant uh, throughout. Uh, the way that the game plan changed offensively based on the personnel that was on the floor was fascinating. Uh, dribble drive penetration, lots of screens when the starting lineup was in. When Devin Booker was in with the bench players, he went to that post-up offense with Devin Booker on Landry Shamit, who, <laughs> poor guy, was absolutely embarrassed at every opportunity by Devin Booker in that scenario. Uh, and then at the end of the game, I think finding ways to throw different guys at Kawhi Leonard to really never make him feel comfortable. And just kind of like you said, the treatment that Devin Booker's getting throughout the first few games uh, is exactly how Kawhi felt, I think, in this game, forcing him to get, I think, the most assists he's ever gotten, I think, with 10 assists. And the way that he used Kelly Oubre and Mikhail Bridges at different times 
to make him uncomfortable with those substitutions I thought was fascinating. And also with <laughs> with Kawhi Leonard, interestingly, he likes to post up a lot. He likes to take a lot of those short mid-range jumpers. They essentially, as soon as he dribbled under the three-point line, sent another guy or another two guys at him and then tried to rotate out to the shooters as quickly as possible to at least contest. And based on the statistic that you found, they were contesting they those did. threes. Yeah. They did. Uh, they did as reasonably as you can expect. Um, right. For, for the amount of traps that they sent Kawhi's way, the rotation for the Suns defensively was very good. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, this is just credit to Monty Williams because there's things with coaching, right? Most of the coaching is done, and I think Channing Fry just had a tweet about this recently that I thought was a, a really good insight into what players think and how they feel. Most coaching is done in practices. 90% of it is what he said. And then just 10% is done during the games. But that 10% can make a massive difference in a close game. So that 10% that Monty did in this game, which is essentially rotations and then game plans based on time of the game, was very impressive. And I hope that's something that he can continue to do uh, throughout. And, and based on what I've seen and the decisions he made at the end of that Denver game, which seemed over two or three times, and then they just continued to fight and continued to scrap I think that Monty Williams has done an excellent job in that 10%. And then, of course, the 90% with all these guys being prepared going into the games was also very impressive. And I think he's also done a good job handling minutes distribution. You know, one one of the things that people were complaining about after that Denver game, which I understand why, is that Mikhail Bridges only played like 13 minutes and Kelly Oubre played 36. But then it flip-flopped the day after. Part of that is because Kelly got into foul trouble. McKelly finished with 22 minutes against the Clippers. McHale finished with 26. And Monty's not an idiot. He knows McHale is the longest wing on this team. He knows to throw a guy with that much length at Kawhi Leonard. He tried to do it consistently throughout the game. And you're right, he switched it up and, and put Kelly on him a little bit more in the second half. Uh, but I thought he's also done a great job with all of the rotations. None of the lineups have looked wonky to me, even with some of these injuries that they've been dealing with. Um, so yeah, all around, I'm just super impressed. Yeah, let's let's talk about some individual players. I think there's a lot of guys to talk about on this team. I think first we should talk a little bit about Devin Booker. Devin sure. Booker has a pretty in, has had a pretty interesting first three games to this season. Uh, I think because the first game uh, was a good game for him. Uh, he didn't get a lot of shots up, but uh, ended up with 22 and 10. The game against Denver was one of the worst games that he's played in a long time, <laughs> scoring wise. And the fact that the, the game was so close. And they were able to to fight and scrap down towards the end of that game was kind of a miracle. And then, of course, he just got blocked on that potential game-winning shot. And, and then the game was over. Uh, and then in this game, he had, in, a, in my opinion, one of the most well-rounded games he's ever had with his 33 points, 8 assists, but also excellent defense. And then I think the leadership in the ability to sort of attract that attention from Patrick Beverly and what they were doing back and forth is vital. Like Patrick Beverly is a force. Now he is not a guy who's going to get, you know, 30, 40 points in a game or anything like that, but he's the emotional leader for that Clippers team because Kawhi Leonard doesn't show any emotion, first of all. And for Devin Booker to really just kind of almost like a prize fighter, just blow for blow with Patrick Beverly and then eventually knocking him out of the game 
with that sixth foul on that turnaround jump shot, which, by the way, was a great pass by Aaron Baines, entry pass to Devin Booker. Think about that. An Aaron Baines entry pass to Devin Booker in the post from the three-point line. Yeah. I mean, this is the world we live in for basketball. But uh, for Devin Booker, just that leadership in that game was fascinating. And I think after that that Denver game, this was so needed for Devin Booker and for Suns fans to see him go out there and be that leader in this game and carry them to a win against the hottest team in the NBA. Very, very impressive game for Devin Booker and an interesting first three games for him. He has grown to the point where it's it's tougher with Rubio out, but I really don't think defenses know what to do. Uh, how do you guard... like? You're an opposing coach. I don't know how you guard Devin Booker at this point. You can trap him. Well, okay, I know what you do. You trap him, which is what teams did all right. all last season because you're not afraid of Aaron Baines. If you don't have the, the benefit of DeAndre Ayton, you're not afraid of Aaron Baines rolling to the rim, and you're not that afraid of his three-point shot. You want to dare him to shoot a little bit and, and make sure that he can continue to prove that he can actually hit it. When DeAndre Ayton comes back 25 games from now or, or 23 games from now or whatever, Booker's offense... His ability to create out of the post, like I was talking about earlier. His ability to create off the pick and roll with either hand. Make drop-off passes to players, find open cutting lanes with either hand. He's so crafty with his left hand. His yeah. playmaking has just gotten exponentially better. His ability to run off of screens when you have Rubio in the game and shoot off the catch. But also his ability to take pull-up threes in transition, which he was doing yesterday against the Clippers. Yep. His game is among the, the best all-around offensive games we're seeing of any player in the NBA right now. Absolutely. That's not an exaggeration. Yeah. It's not at all. His mid-range game, too. I mean, in, you know, in some ways, he's more well-rounded than a player like James Harden with his ability to score from really anywhere on the court, whereas James Harden is a guy who's very much either at the rim or step back three. Yeah. So I just don't know what you do when DeAndre Ayton comes back to try and stop this guy because if the rest of the Suns players can actually shoot... 35% from three, uh, then it's it's a very tall order to try and defend this team and stop them from being, at the very least, an above-average offensive team. And that's what we need to talk about going forward a little bit, too, uh, when we talk about how sustainable is all of this performance. I buy into the Suns' offense right now, especially with Rubio and Aiton on the floor, yeah. and I buy into them being an above-average offensive team. We need to talk about a little bit more, do we buy into their defense, which has also been very good so far, and I think that's a little bit... Um, a little more reason for skepticism there, uh, but their offense has been great. To your point about Devin Booker's playmaking being improved, through three games this season, nobody in the NBA has more assists than Devin Booker. He has the most assists. Now, he's not currently averaging the most assists per game because there are some players, I think Trey Young's actually uh, number one, there are some players who've only played two games that have more assists than Devin Booker, but through three games, nobody has more assists than him so far. So impressively, he is somehow the best point guard, essentially, in the NBA so far, and still is averaging a low amount for him at, I think, 23 points uh, so far. But that's going to go up. It's just Devin Booker. He's clearly trying to get get guys involved. I think what is impressive too is I, I like that you pointed out his growth in either hand his left hand or right hand but I also think the recognition of trying to get guys involved who we need to win games has been really impressive and particularly in that Denver game Dario Saric was so needed in that game he had to be good in order for the Suns to be even close and Devin Booker clearly had an intentional 
focus on having Dario Saric involved on the offense. And I think that kept Dario invested in the game. And then mm-hmm. in overtime, when everybody fouled out, who was guarding Jokic? It was Dario. And Jokic had no field goals in overtime with Dario Saric guarding him. So those kind of point guard recognition, the ability to sort of understand the game on a big picture level is something that Devin Booker has had in in spades. Like it's not something that he was excellent at. But I think his growth in that area, his growth in leadership throughout these first three games, and I know three games, but his growth there <laughs> has been very impressive. And I and I just there's there's so much that can be said about Devin Booker, and he's just been so impressive over these games, dealing with adversity already because it's the Suns. And uh, I've been I've had a great time watching him. Me too. And and just to continue on your point about Dario, Devin Booker has so much reason to be scarred from from past seasons mm-hmm. and not trust his teammates. And he's choosing to do the proper thing, which is to trust his teammates to make big plays. And it instills confidence in them. And you can see it with Dario. I know that some fans are. Uh, or at least were before that Clipper game, a little bit frustrated about Dario's shot not going in. It's going to be a hit-or-miss type thing. Sometimes the shot's going to fall, sometimes it's not. But what I like so much about Dario compared to guys like Bender is that Dario has the confidence to do things like in the first quarter of the Clipper game last night, he worked to get a switch, set a screen on Patrick Beverly, who was guarding Devin Booker, worked to get positioning in the post with Patrick Beverly, who, as you were talking about before, is a dog on defense. You know, he's much shorter than Beverly, and Saric was able to recognize that. So he got the good positioning, took the entry pass from Booker, who willingly gave it to him, and worked for an and one in the post. And Dario just does stuff like that. He plays like yeah. a legitimate power forward. The shot is important. It's always going to be the most important thing with that guy. But his defense on Jokic that you mentioned two nights ago, his ability to work out of the post on guys like Beverly, like I was just mentioning, his ability to pump fake on the perimeter, put the ball on the floor for a second or two just to find someone else, get something open. These are things we didn't see last year. They're things that are important. They're things that distinguish Saric from not just being another... Uh, you know, random ass white big who shoots like that's just that's there's a yeah. stereotype. Yeah, there's a stereotype for for somewhat of a good reason among NBA fans that you look at a player like that and you think you know exactly what they are. You think this is our this year's version of Ryan Anderson. It's our Mirza Toledovic. It's our John Luer, whatever. And he is not that. Part of that comes from confidence being instilled into him by Devin Booker, and Devin Booker has been a fantastic leader, and it, it doesn't just rub off on Dario, it's already rubbing off on other players. Frank Kaminsky, uh, for yes. one, has been amazing as well, and so yes. we can talk about those guys too. Yeah, speaking of random-ass big white guys who could shoot, <laughs> Frank Kaminsky is the guy we should talk about next. That's actually the next guy I had in my notes, because if you think about the biggest surprises of this season so far, Frank <laughs> Kaminsky has to be near the top of that list. Of course, I think the biggest surprises in general are just the Suns being an excellent team. Now, we expected them to improve, but through three three games, they're one of the best teams in the NBA. But Frank Kaminsky, he's fourth on the team in scoring. He's fourth in assists. He's second in rebounding. And this is all off the bench. I think that... When we talked about potential guys who could win an award for the Suns when we did our, <laughs> uh, you know, our, our whatever we were doing, Frank Kaminsky was not someone that we talked about, I think, at all because no. 
He's just, well, first off, he's the first guy off the bench for this team consistently in all three games. That makes him essentially the sixth man, if you will. Um, and, you know, some Suns fans might not be happy about Mikhail Bridges not being that guy. But when you watch Frank Kaminsky play, you start to understand why he really just makes the best decision on just about every single play when he touches the ball. That decision is sometimes shooting. It's sometimes pump faking and driving. It's sometimes... Uh, posting up, but oftentimes you don't even need to pass him the ball. He can get that offensive rebound and put it back up because he's the tallest guy on the team and his arms get up high enough that he can catch the ball and put it right back in. Frank Kaminsky has started a sixth man of the year campaign so far on this team and that's something that I never expected and I've been very impressed with him so far. I'm all for it. I'm all for it and he needs to continue to recognize that role to not be pigeonholed. And to continue to attack. Eddie Johnson, usually, you know, I think is a phenomenal commentator. He only said one thing that I didn't agree with yesterday, which was Frank tried to drive uh, instead of shooting and turned it over. I don't remember how he did it. And Frank's, um, sorry, Eddie said, you know, he has to rein it in a little bit, stick with what you're good at. And I think on previous teams, that may have been what Frank would be inclined to do is just stay on the perimeter. I'm a three-point shooter. I'm going to do this. But especially when you don't have Ricky Rubio in the game, you're Frank Kaminsky. You're a good playmaker for your position. Work to find the open guy. And I think he's really a guy who's capable of doing that. He, he finished with six assists last night. Um, and, and so I think it's just recognizing that, yes, he's, again, a three-point shooter, but he can do so much more for this team's offense than just that. Now, I will say, uh, three games so far, no blocks on the yeah. defensive end. And like, so, you know, just go into that recognize that that's not what he's going to give you. He's not going to be a huge defensive plus, but as long as he rotates his feet well on defense and continues to give what he's giving on offense, you're going to get a hell of a player for $5 million. Yeah, I think for Suns fans, uh, I have a lot of stats I'm going to talk about for the team overall later in this podcast, but one thing I will say right now, since you brought it up, don't expect this team to get a lot of blocks. They're just not going to. There's just no big, giant, athletic guys with long arms except for Kelly Oubre, essentially. And then Mikhail Bridges has his long arms, of course. But there's just not going to be a lot of blocks for this team. Even Aaron Baines, for all he's good at, he's a guy that just takes contact and, and forces guys to miss. There's just not going to be a lot. Which uh, is so, awesome. But, yeah, <laughs> but, it's, honestly, but you it can is honestly, you can play really great defense without getting blocks. And so far, that's kind of what they're doing. So, but I just think don't expect that number to go up a lot. I have a few other guys I want to talk about. I can already tell this is going to be a long episode, so <laughs> let me get through them. Kelly Oubre Jr., we should talk about him. Averaging 21-7, and seven, seven rebounds for Kelly Oubre on 51, 38, and 100 shooting splits because he <laughs> has not yet missed a free throw in 19 attempts. He's attacking, and I think what's interesting about Kelly Oubre and the way Monty has used him so far is that in the first game, he was trying to do too much. We talked about it a little bit after that Sacramento game. In the Denver game, he really reeled it in. He wasn't doing too much. But the other thing I think is interesting is Monty does not put him in a position to playmake for others because he's not good at it. When Kelly Oubre catches the ball in this offense, he's usually moving towards the basket. Yeah. He does not have to dribble side to side. It's downhill every single time. And that means that he's probably going to shoot a layup or try to dunk it or hopefully get fouled because that's the most efficient shot in the NBA. Of course, for him, he's shooting 100%. And I think what's interesting is 
finding ways to put somebody like Kelly Oubre Jr. into your offense when he's not good at passing is not an easy task. That's actually a difficult task. We actually talked about it uh, a little bit with Tim Krangis, who came on the podcast uh, when he was on with us when we were talking about data and how hard it is to find guys who not are not great shooters and find positions for them to succeed here. And I think what Kelly Oubre Jr. has done so far this season has been insanely impressive. And the way that Monty has used him I think is exactly what you have to do. It's almost hard to talk about this team now going forward if Monty continues to make so many great decisions. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to talk about, <laughs> Sam. We're not used to that, but I've been very impressed. What have, you, what have you thought? I know you had some criticisms of Kelly Oubre Jr. after that first game. What have you thought about the last two? Well, no, I mean, the, my criticism of Kelly just remains the same. It's that he's not a good passer, and we know that. So you have to, I mean, what, what season is it for Kelly? Is it his fourth year, fifth year? Fifth, I believe. I do not remember. Okay, so if it's his fifth season, you're basically accepting at this point uh, the passing might just never be there. And so you work to to work around that, and that's exactly what Monty is doing. I think you bring up a great point in that the way I'm noticing Kelly is being used. First of all, he's hitting his threes so far. Yeah. That's that's important. Yeah. But beyond that, you're using him at the... If he's going to get a shot off, it's either going to be at the beginning of the shot clock. It's going to be in transition. You're pushing the pace, trying to get it to him, and he's been great. Uh, out on the fast break so far. Absolutely phenomenal through three games. I love him uh, being used in that way. Or you're going to work to find him cutting lanes, work with that downward uh, momentum as you were talking about. But the other way you can use him is because you don't want to completely eliminate his ability to create for himself a little bit, especially if you don't have DeAndre Ayton in the post where DeAndre Ayton can create instant offense and you don't have Ricky Rubio's penetration that we saw so much in game one against Sacramento. You need a bailout option. You need to be able to run a set. If nothing's going to happen from this set, there's 10 seconds left on the shot clock. Okay, have Kelly run around the perimeter, take a screen, and let him go to work and do something. Like, if he's going to get, and that's what I've noticed he's been doing with Monty. Yeah. It's like he doesn't, he's not necessarily the first option in the offense. Partially because you know when he starts going towards the basket, it's not going, it's going up. It's not yeah. going to anyone right. else on the team. Yeah. But if you just need to get a, if it's too predictable, but if you just need to get a shot off, you don't care about predictable. If there's 10 seconds left, you couldn't yeah. get Devin Booker open. It is totally acceptable to bring Kelly and make him the primary option there as your bailout. And that's how he's been getting a lot of his offense as well. And it's been yeah. very effective so far. Yeah, and it's and it's the way that Igor Kokoshkov used him towards the end of last season when he had the best stretch of his career. So, I mean, the, the blueprint was there, but I think it's been impressive to t- kind of... Because t- the only other thing that Kelly Oubre did last season that he hasn't really done this season is handle it a little more around pick and rolls. It seems like most of it is a DHO curl, essentially, with him yes. going towards yes. the basket. And I think that's kind of the way to use him. I, you know, limit his <laughs> limit his dribbling, basically, as much as possible because that's just not his skill set. And, and he can get better at that. But uh, the sort of side-to-side thing that I was talking about, it's not really what is necessary for him it's that it's that downhill thing and I think with Kelly Oubre Jr. too what I was just talking about with Patrick Beverly earlier being the heart of his team even if he's not the best player that's Kelly Oubre that's absolutely what he does to this team the energy that he brings and the way that he sort of infects his teammates with enthusiasm is something that it's almost you know it's almost impossible to like put into statistics you can't you can't measure this with math in any way 
It's just something that certain guys have, an energy, infectiousness, that changes the way that other players play. And I think Kelly Oubre Jr. just has that. He's brought that sort of Valley Boys energy to this team uh, in a way that I think makes everyone work a little harder. And it's been kind of fascinating. And I think it's, it's more necessary for the young players than it is for the vets. The young players need that. And it's funny if you watch the clip that we've been posting from our Twitter account, for yes. the podcast it's you, so funny if you watch so the clip funny. of them they, they're moshing now essentially you know kelly Uber's taking that uh that converse <laughs> that converse deal to heart and they're moshing before games essentially like a like an old school punk concert and but if you watch it it's all the young guys that are in there pushing around it's it's mikhail bridges it's javon carter uh <laughs> it's kelly Ubre jr and then at the edges there's dario Saric, there's uh, uh ricky rubio and aaron baines just kind of kind of being involved with that but kind of just like you know touching them a little and just pushing them back into the middle without jumping in the middle of it well you you don't want aaron baines shoving anyone too hard or or else you're gonna have a a big disabled list on your yeah yeah and it's just kind of funny to to watch and i just really i think i really appreciate what kelly uber jr brings to his team in that way and I, I'm starting to think that maybe that two-year deal wasn't the best option for us. Maybe we should have tried to lock him down a little longer because if he keeps doing what he's doing, it's going to be hard to keep him for a fair price. I think he's going to earn a lot of money going forward. But the thing is, if he keeps doing this and if he, if he keeps playing the defense he is, he, he'll be worth it. Like That's a contract that'll actually be worth it. So um, Kelly Uber Jr. and how he's been playing I think that's something that we got to watch going forward I do have another player I want to talk about before we take a break because we got to take a break at some point but do you have anything else you want to say about Kelly Ubre? No I mean just I would echo everything you say um, I think if he continues to be a 21.7 rebound guy with good defense yeah. for the next two years then that's a third option on a contending team Absolutely. so the money, the money would be worth it the goal was uh, not because you wanted to disrespect Kelly with a two-year offer, but it was just flexibility. It was the the insurance that you might be able to go out there and lure a bigger fish than Kelly to Phoenix. But if Kelly can grow into that fish, then by all means, re-sign him. Yeah, and even better, right? Because he's already endeared by the fan base and his and his teammates love him. You can just tell. But the other guy I want to talk about, and of course we'll still talk about other players as we get into some more, I want to talk about Monty Williams and I want to talk about how the team has played as a whole after this break. But the other guy before we get to that break that I want to talk about is Javon Carter. Because <laughs> Javon Carter is a fascinating player that we expected essentially nothing from when we did our preseason expectations. I don't think that we even talked about him, like at all. And to be thrust into the starting lineup because of a Ricky Rubio bone bruise, which we don't know how long that's going to last. It will be nice if Rubio plays against his former team. I think it may be day to day. It may. Yeah, have I think it is. It's a bruise. It's a bone bruise. So it's yeah. not. It's hard to predict exactly how long that will take to heal. Uh, but Javon Carter is in the game now, and when I mean in the game, I mean he's in the game. Like he's playing a lot, and Javon Carter is a fascinating player. For a lot of reasons. One, he's really small, but he has a defensive reputation. Being that small with that short of arms, that makes it difficult. Long arms for his size, but just he's not going to block a lot of shots like uh, like John Wall or, or Dwayne Wade, if you will. Or D'Anthony Melton. Or D'Anthony Melton, who has... I mean, D'Anthony <laughs> Melton's physical attributes are insane. Like He yeah. has insanely long arms. But Javon Carter has more three-pointers made on this team 
than any other player at seven three-pointers. He, he's made the most threes of anyone on the Suns, and good luck predicting that through three games. Last season, he shot, I looked it up, last episode I said he was in the 30s for his field goal percentage last season. That was wrong. He shot 26% field goal percentage last season. That's how bad he was at shooting. And that was with a 33% from three. But, his, and this is his only season in the NBA, and that was with Memphis. His last two years at West Virginia, he shot 39% from three, two years in a row. Uh, you know, and he was a four-year player coming out of college. That's why he's older in his second season in the NBA. And, you know, you, you start to wonder if, you know, maybe a, he's not, he's shooting like 55% from three right now. That's not who he really is. <laughs> But maybe he is closer to like a 38% three-point shooter than, you know, the 33% he was before. And if he can limit his shots at the rim and really just kind of be a 3 and D guy from that one position, maybe he'll be more valuable than we anticipated, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, the thing about his defense is um, he has to be positionally smart at all times and work within the fact that he's not the physical specimen that a guy like DeAnthony Melton is, right? right? It's almost impressive that Javon Carter, it's more impressive that Javon Carter can get as many steals as he does because he has to work that much harder uh, to get his hand on the ball in the first place. It means he's just in a better position, but it also means he can't gamble too much. um, And he gets knocked off his center of gravity maybe a, a little more often than you would like from really like an elite defensive player. So I wouldn't call him that. Um, and I wouldn't say that we should expect him to be an elite defensive player. I would say you can expect him to give elite levels of hustle. And kind yeah. of like what you were saying with Kelly Oubre, that can be infectious, right? That can convince the rest of the team to really pick up the pace right. on defense. And he can sort of grow into that role as a captain of the defense when he's on the floor. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean he's going to lock down the opposing player's best player because he doesn't have the wingspan, first of all, to guard anyone other than point guards, really, maybe shooting guards. Um, but yeah, overall, defensively, he's a good player. He just needs to hit shots. And look, People were mad two nights ago when Mikhail Bridges wasn't playing and Javon Carter was on the floor. Javon Carter earned that playing time because he did on offense exactly what Monty is emphasizing with point five. Right. It's that fearlessness that I was talking about before. Mikhail Bridges, as much as I love that guy, you got three options when you catch the ball. You shoot, drive, or pass. And Mikhail right now on offense is the one guy where you can point to him and say, he looks timid. Javon Carter doesn't look timid. Mikhail, for whatever reason, seems hesitant to try and create his own offense, try and either shoot uh, without hesitation or to put the ball on the floor, similar to how those other forwards are operating, and try to create for others. It just hasn't quite clicked for Mikhail yet, uh, but Javon isn't afraid to take that shot. So if he's not afraid to take that shot, that's who Monty's going to go with. Uh, yeah. And and yeah, I think that's just with how it is. With Javon on the floor, uh, Devin Booker is the real point guard. Javon Carter, for all he's good at... He can't really penetrate. He just can't. No, he can't. He, he doesn't really have the ball skills, and he's not athletic enough to really get under the rim with the ball. He's just not capable of that. So if you see Javon Carter dribbling around the perimeter a little too much, that, that possession's probably going to fall apart a little bit. And it's not his fault. He's, been, he's just not really a starting point guard. That's not really what he does. So when he's on the floor, Devin Booker has to take those primary playmaker duties the way that he did in that Clippers game. And I think the way he did a little better in that uh, Denver game as well, whereas the Sacramento game, I think he was trying a little too much, where they can kind of afford to when you're up by 29 points. 
But, you know, it's not his fault. He's sort of thrust into that position. And I think if we have to go an extended period of time with Javon Carter at the point guard position, that's going to be a problem no matter what. We're, we're sort of back to Devin Booker not really having a secondary playmaker uh, on the floor with him uh, until maybe Ty Jerome comes back because Ty well, Jerome, I mean, he has you all those can, skills. You can still just play him. And I was surprised Monty didn't do it more last night. Honestly, you can play him with Tyler Johnson. And it's basically mm-hmm. what we saw in March of last year. Yeah, they did that in the fourth. You know, they, they really, they didn't do it a lot, just like you said. But I think in the fourth quarter, when, when crunch time was kind of coming down, they even had lineups with all three of the guys on the floor, with uh, uh, Tyler Johnson, Devin Booker, and Javon Carter, because, uh, you know, Devin Booker is pretty big for, for his position, so he can kind of play up a little bit. And Tyler Johnson as well, just a really smart defender, um, covers all of that. Um, so Javon Carter, I just want to say highly impressed with what he's done compared to what was expected out of him, similar to Frank Kaminsky. I think he's done a very good job uh, with the sort of the hand he was dealt, if you will. And, I, and I'm really confident in him going forward. And we'll see how that shot holds up because it's possible he'll regress back to 33%. But if you look at his college career, there's reason to believe that he's better than that 33%, but not as good as, as he is at that 55% because no player is that good. But real quick, before we go to break, can we talk about his mom <laughs> a little bit? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm afraid she's going to find this episode if I do. <laughs> That's exactly why I wanted to bring it up. For those who don't know, she, her name on Twitter is CJ Johnson. So it's hard to even know because uh, it's not Carter. Uh, she's at number four mama. And on this podcast and on Twitter, we've interacted with a lot of different players parents right we've had two of them on the podcast and, and a lot of them have been on twitter ladicia for example ladicia holmes rashawn holmes his mother she's all about the culture she's a fan of the team she's bringing everyone together uh she's there to support her son but she's more than that she wants everyone to be involved with it she's she's a culture mark jerome ty jerome's dad who we had on the podcast he's a coach and everything he does is sort of through that coach's lens and that's just who he is. So he's going to talk about his son that way, and he'll uh, talk to other people that way. But CJ, she's nothing but a Javon fan. That is what <laughs> she is, and that is what she cares about. And you have to kind of love it. She will search his name on a daily basis, and she will clap back to people who say anything bad about Javon. And, and that's literally anyone. And not only that, from what I've seen, she'll remember what you said in the past and she'll bring it back up to you and throw it in your face the way I love to do with national media people about Devin Booker. And, you know, I just, I really like it. I really like the way that she's supporting him. And I think it's just, it's different than the other parents that we've interacted with in the past. And there's just something kind of fun and something kind of endearing about somebody who just loves their son that much and is willing to just kind of go out on a limb and fight for him every single day. So, so shout out to CJ, I guess, is all I really wanted to say about that. Yeah, it's it's endearing when he's playing well, for sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting. <laughs> we'll, we'll, see, yeah. we'll see. It's exactly you know? right. It'll be interesting when she has or when he has a, a a bad stretch, which will come at some point, as every player kind of does. Uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, what she says at that point. I'm sure it'll be all love and support. But let's take a quick break, uh, and when we come back, we're gonna have a real quick segment for you guys of this week in Suns history, and uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about this team going forward. Humans have been shaving for thousands of years, and the secret to a great shave hasn't changed much. The ancient Greeks didn't need flex balls or heated handles, and neither do you. 
That's why Harry's doesn't overcharge you to add gimmicky features to their razors. They focus on delivering what actually matters, sharp, durable blades at a fair price. I love Harry's because it gives me a close shave, easy glide, and low price. Do us a favor and check out harrys.com slash bluewire for your free trial today. Harry's is a return to essential, quality, durable blades at a fair price. Just $2 per blade. It's super convenient. They're delivered directly to your door. There's no risk for trying it out. So if you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Listeners of the timeline can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com slash bluewire. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor with lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. Go to harrys.com slash bluewire to start shaving better today. The holiday rush is coming, and if you sell stuff online, you better get ready with ShipStation. With more people buying online than ever before, you have to be able to ship orders out quickly, efficiently, and affordably. But how do you keep track of all those orders? Or decide which shipping carrier to use, or if you're getting the best rates? Luckily, ShipStation can help. With just a few clicks, you'll be managing orders, printing labels, and getting those products out the door and delivered on time for the holidays. No matter where you're selling, Amazon, Etsy, or your own website, ShipStation brings all your orders to one simple interface, making them really easy to manage from every device, including your cell phone. ShipStation works with all the major carriers, including USPS, FedEx, and UPS, so you can compare and choose the best shipping solution for you and your customer. They even offer big discounts on shipping costs. Now, any business can access the same postage discounts that are usually reserved for large Fortune 500 companies. You'll always know that you're getting the best deal. No wonder ShipStation is the number one choice of online sellers. You'll ship more in less time with the best rates available. Take the hassle out of holiday shipping this year. Let ShipStation help you handle it all with ease. Just use our offer code BLUE, B-L-U-E, to get a 60-day free trial. That's two months free of no-hassle, stress-free holiday shipping. Just visit ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and type in BLUE. That's ShipStation.com and offer code BLUE. ShipStation. Make ship happen. This week in Sun's History... The year is 2017. It's the beginning of the 50th season ever for the Phoenix Suns. The Suns' starting lineup is Eric Bledsoe, Devin Booker, Josh Jackson, TJ Warren, and Tyson Chandler. The Suns' coach is Earl Watson. Their first game? The Portland Trailblazers. It didn't go well. In fact, it was the worst loss in Suns' history. The Suns only scored 76 points but gave up 124, losing by 48 points. They would follow that up two games later with a 42-point loss against the Clippers in the third game of the season. That's when the Suns star player Eric Bledsoe tweeted out an infamous tweet. Five words that set the basketball world on fire. I don't want to be here. This tweet, clearly about the Suns and its situation, led to Earl Watson being fired, Eric Bledsoe being banished from the team and eventually traded, but most importantly, the reins of the Phoenix Suns were now given to a 20-year-old player named Devin Booker, whether or not he was ready for it. 
That means wins and losses were now on him. Nobody else was available to blame. He was now a franchise player, picked at 13. Eric Bledsoe would pretend he was at the salon with his wife, while Devin Booker played basketball with teammates who had all but given up. Eventually, Eric Bledsoe was traded to Milwaukee for Greg Monroe, a 2018 first-round draft pick, and a 2018 protected second-round pick. But Devin Booker, now 22, is still the star player of the Phoenix Suns, with the hopes and dreams of Suns fans on his shoulders. But now, they beat the Clippers in the third game of the season, and guess what? The players seem like they want to be here. Yeah, that Eric Bledsoe was a bad guy. <laughs> a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> but we got to see this team with Devin Booker as a star now. Okay, so... Sam, I wanted to talk about our impressions of Monty Williams through sort of a big picture lens here. So I pulled, we're going to do some small sample size theater again here. I pulled some stats about the Phoenix Suns so far, and uh, I just want to go through each of them and uh, talk a little bit about it. Now, through three games, the Suns are fourth in the NBA in points off of turnovers. And I think that goes hand in hand with them being 11th in fast break points. This was a huge topic about Monty Williams uh, coming into the season. Will the Suns run? Will they actually play fast? And it seems like they are so far. Do you have any thoughts on those stats? Yeah, they've pushed pushed the pace. It's, I think that's an objective thing that we can say, right? (laughs) Like we both, we both noticed in the games there. Yeah, eleventh, and uh, yeah, they're they're not first by any means. Not that I would want them to be necessarily. They don't really have uh, the personnel for that. I think they would well, be right and, if they had it. It seems like they and want anytime, to do that. Anytime you bring up pace, like Suns fans have this weird relationship with pace because they just yeah. think about the entire history of this right. franchise of being generally good and generally fast. We changed. But, we changed the NBA. Kind of. <laughs> we <laughs> we know, did. The we Suns did. did. But, or they did, but but pace yeah. has no correlation with winning. You can be a slow team uh, and still be an amazing team. You can mm-hmm. be a very fast team, like the Suns were the past few years, and you can be awful. This year, they have the right personnel for it, and I really like the ball pressure on defense and turning uh, turnovers into points on the other end. Yeah, so they've. I think Monty has done a good job of emphasizing that and uh, and understanding what he has in this team. What I- now, I will say, I will say one one caveat mm-hmm. is that. Bane starting kind of throws a wrench into things a little bit. Like, it doesn't ruin the whole thing. It's just so much harder to push with, uh, and all due respect to Aaron Baines, who I think has been great with his screens and, and everything. But DeAndre Ayton is a different type of physical guy yeah. to be running the floor than Aaron Baines. So it is a little bit more challenging. But I still think you want to be faster than average. Yeah, I think what's impressive about that stat, particularly to me, is... I mean, who do you think is good at fast breaks on the Suns right now? You have DeAndre Ayton, Devin Booker, Kelly Oubre. Anyone else? Uh, who's healthy? Well, okay, Ricky Rubio <laughs> yeah. kind of has... Rubio can get the ball down, but he's exactly. not overly exactly. fast. Exactly. Yeah. He's not overly fast. He's got great vision, and that counts. He's not necessarily going to score at an above-average efficiency for himself. Um, but I think it's all relative. I think Dario is not fast at all but better than what we've had in the past. Uh, and there's another, there's an advantage to having as many shooters as possible because what happens when you do that, when you don't just have Archie Goodwins and Derek Jones Juniors that run down the floor and dunk, you've got guys like Kelly Oubre, Devin Booker, who can push the ball down the floor. And then you've got the slower guys trailing. Aaron Baines, 
Frank Kaminsky, Dario Sarge, they can all hit a trailing three. They don't have to get there quite as quick. Uh, you know, there can be seven or eight, nine seconds off the shot clock by that point. You draw the defense in, you kick it back out to them, and I think that's how we've seen a lot of our open threes so far. Uh, yeah. So, you know, all that stuff is going to continue too. Yeah, a- everything think- fits. Yeah, exactly. I just think it's interesting that they're 11th in fast break points per game and they don't really have like a De'Aaron Fox or a guy that's just no. like a Russell Westbrook, a guy that just kind of blazes down the court and gets to the rim and finds guys, uh, you know, on the perimeter or just dunks and scores. We just don't have any guys like that. So I've been really impressed with their ability to continue to score uh, at that rate. And I hope that continues. I think fast break points are important because they're easy buckets and we need to get as many easy buckets as possible. What we didn't really talk about before the season is sort of the idea of efficiency, right? And, and the Houston Rockets are, are the best example of it. The Houston Rockets take two different kinds of shots. They take shots at the rim, and they take three-pointers. And for all that James Jones and Monty Williams talked about before the season, they didn't really talk about that. But the Suns right now are actually sixth in the NBA in points in the paint, and they don't really take a lot of mid-range shots like at all. I think the only guy really that takes mid-range shots so far on this team is Devin Booker. And occasionally, yep. some of the big men will take mid-range shots on a short roll if the shot clock is running out. And I found that to be kind of interesting that they are playing the efficiency game without talking about it. And I do wonder if strategically from a coaching perspective if they're trying not to word it in the way that makes the players feel like it's kind of a nerdy thing. <laughs> you know what that's, I mean? inter- that's an interesting theory. I don't know. I mean, I think this team has enough veterans that, I don't know, I look, I, who am I to say? But I look, I look at this roster and I don't think like Aaron Baines or Frank Kaminsky or Tyler Johnson are going to have a problem with analytics, like would have a problem with the phrase Mori yeah. Ball being thrown around this team if right. we were going to use it. Tyler Johnson, by the way, he's another name. I've definitely seen him do a few pull-up mid-range jumpers. Um, that's yeah. part of the benefit of having him play is that he can actually put the ball on the floor and hit a mid-range shot. So he's done it. Uh, but overall, I definitely agree with you. I almost feel like Monty Williams, it's like this weird hybrid where you can feel the old school Uh, coaching game in him a little bit because he wants to encourage Devin Booker to play in a way that shooting guards don't really play anymore. He wants Devin Booker to get his hands dirty a little bit, get in the post, back guys down. And he wants to see that out of um, Dario's done some post-ups too. Frank's done some post-ups. But then on the other hand, you have all these guys shooting threes. uh, And yeah, so it's kind of a weird mix of old and new styles of coaching all blended together. Put them in a blender. What a good coach does is adapt to their personnel what a bad coach does is force everyone to play the system that's sort of in their mind right and a good coach will find what players are good at and try and build a system around that so i think that's kind of what he's doing and i think you know we've talked a lot on twitter and on a reddit people have talked a lot about the idea of point book and if that's something that's going to happen a lot more uh going forward uh with this team and for what we can tell no i mean to the point of there not being a point guard on the floor no Yes, Devin Booker will run the offense for extended periods of time, but it does not seem like he's going to be at that one position going forward at all unless absolutely forced to. There's been very few minutes without Devin Booker playing with at least Tyler Johnson or Javon Carter or Ricky Rubio and no Ty Jerome yet, but we'll see if that happens again in the future. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Yeah, because this situation isn't as dire. Uh, You can trust even Javon Carter 
I shouldn't even say even Javon Carter. You can trust Javon Carter and Tyler Johnson to make an entry pass to Devin Booker. You can trust them to find him to initiate the offense. Like, we couldn't even necessarily trust that that would happen last year. DeAnthony Melton was possibly, probably the worst offensive point guard in the NBA, at least the worst offensive point guard in the NBA who started a number of games. Uh, So it's the personnel, again, has just gotten better, and, and Booker hasn't really had to be forced into that role. Yeah, and you know we'll see if anything like that happens in the future. They're really down to the wire here. It, it, you know, Ty Jerome. It seems like it's going to be out for a few weeks. He was on crutches, uh, so it doesn't seem like he's coming back uh, anytime soon. They haven't dressed Jalen Lequeux once. I think that's sort of a break in case of emergency <laughs> thing for yeah. for the team. I don't think Jalen Lequeux is getting any minutes anytime soon. He has been traveling with the team. We talked about him potentially being with the G League. Their season hasn't started yet, but we'll see if. Once it does, if that's something that ends up happening. But I, I think it's nice that he's been traveling with the team. Um, the next stat I have, the team is 13th in transition defense. This is opponents' fast break points per game. That's, that's, not, like, that's not top of the league, but that's really good for the Phoenix Suns. They have been an abject disaster <laughs> in transition defense over the last few seasons. And I think that sort of transformation has been really impressive. And transition defense, essentially, in my opinion, just takes focus. You have to focus. You have to run back. You can't let yourself get distracted on rebounds or complain to the refs if you feel like you got fouled when you miss a layup. Like, that kind of thing turns into points at the other end. And I think that actually even has room to get better for this team. Uh, But 13th in transition defense is pretty good so far. What do you think about that? It's very good given our expectations. Uh, coming into the season, what did you expect? I mean, I thought maybe this would be the 15th best offensive team in the NBA and yeah. like the 25th best defensive team. Does yeah. that sound about right? Yeah, that's fair. For for what we were for, expecting. For, so, for 35 so get, wins or whatever we were, you know, Right, like that, that feels like that would equate to about what we were expecting. I, I projected 33. Yeah. So, so yeah, but I mean, guys who uh, have a reputation of being slow... <laughs> and and a little bit uh, just slow to react, I thought have done a good job of shuffling their feet. Of course, you've got your athletic guys who hustle back there, your Kelly Oubre's, uh, your Mikhail Bridges's, uh, Bridges, uh, and Javon <laughs> Carter. Uh, but guys like Dario Saric, I think, defensively, you talked about the post-defense on Jokic earlier, but I think he's doing a good job of getting back, yeah. way better than Ryan Anderson did to open last season. Yeah, or Trevor uh, so Reza. All, or Trevor Reza. So all of that stuff, it, it all makes a difference. Yeah, and I think to your point about offense, I think the most interesting stat in all of this, they're averaging 120 points per game, which is seventh in the NBA, but they're currently, the Suns are first in the NBA in assists, number one in assists, and I think number three in assist to turnover ratio, and I think that is really amazing, and I think that's really amazing particularly because the entire offense, when Rubio's playing, the entire offense essentially runs through Rubio and Booker, period. Those guys are two of the top players in the NBA in assists per game currently. I think they're both in like the top 15 or something like that in assists per game. Two guys on the same team uh, being a top in the NBA. And I think just really, really impressive for the team to be first in the NBA in assists. And I don't know when the last time the Phoenix Suns for any stretch of a season were first in the NBA in assists, even just being three games into the season. Were they not? During the Nash years? I, I, I probably. If, if at any time, that would be the time that you would expect right, it to yeah, be. Right, yeah. I would expect them to be. Uh, now I have to look it up real quick. Yeah. 
You know, it's interesting because I think with the personnel that we have, you've talked about it a lot. Every player is kind of an above average playmaker for their position. And I think it is showing in the stats that that's the case because 2008 by the way sorry to interrupt no that was the the Suns led the league in assists in 2008 yeah that's a long time ago (laughs) you know that's more than 10 years ago uh at this point so yeah that that's that's really kind of what i expected for that so it's been a very very long time and, and we'll see if they keep it up right this is not this is three three games into the season but I mean, there's reason to believe they'll be at the top of the league. Maybe not number one, but maybe top five, top ten in assists per game. That's not out of the question, I think, for for the personnel that are on this team with guys like Ricky Rubio and what Devin Booker does. And even like Frank Kaminsky coming off the bench, this is just another guy that can average three or four assists where that normally does not happen with guys coming off the bench, especially at that position. So I've been been really impressed with that. That's, I think, the most impressive stat. When you talk about, yeah, it is. When you talk about identity, this is the chance, this particular skill for the Suns to develop their identity. Um, this team's going to have hot shooting nights. They're going to have cold shooting nights. That's not what they're going to be known for. And they're not going to be known for their defense, even if their defense is holding up so far. When other teams come in to play the Phoenix Suns, like what they're going to be afraid of, first of all, they're going to be afraid of Devin Booker just generally, I think. Yeah. But also when they're trying to game plan, they're going to say the scary thing about this team is that there's no. Uh, you know, lack of basketball IQ having rim running center where it's like they get the ball at the elbow and you just know that they're not going to do anything with it except hand off to another player. No, every player on this team, they get the ball. They're in a position to attack your defense at the very least, regardless of their other offensive abilities, because they can pass and they're willing to, well, okay, everyone except Kelly Oubre is very willing to pass and will find those open guys. And it's it's going to be the thing the Suns have the best chance of being elite at. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I definitely agree with that. And And I hope it keeps up because that's really fun to watch. That's the other part is the ball being able to move around is really is really fun to watch. It makes it a lot more entertaining. They've also been seventh in rebounding. That is has been a huge topic with you and I on this podcast, and I think one of the more underrated stats for the last few seasons in why they've been so terrible is that they were really bad at rebounding. And I think seventh in rebounding. I don't. There's not a lot to talk about with that. I think personnel wise, they're a lot better. But I don't. I, that's one of those stats that I don't know is going to sustain them. I, I'm pretty confident they'll do well in assists. I just think the way the offense runs and the personnel, there's going to be a lot of assists. I do think seventh and rebounding is kind of high for the personnel on this team, and I wonder if that will be able to continue. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think that's relied so far on Kelly Oubre being seven rebounds per game is significantly more than he's done in any other season in his career. I don't think he's ever averaged more than five. So for him to jump from five to seven is a big deal, and other guys like Saric and Kaminsky are contributing to that as well. But I think the more that Kelly Oubre can convince you that he can actually rebound, yeah. uh, the more you can maybe buy into this idea of playing him at the four, and you can play him and Mikhail together with one at small forward, the other at power forward, and maximize your ability to just pressure the hell out of the ball and bother passing lanes, which is an effective uh, lineup for Monty to throw out occasionally. It's yeah. just when you do that, you don't want to give up too many second chance points and so to not give up too many second chance points kelly needs to prove that he can actually sustain this rebounding Mm -hmm. Uh, if he can then it's a really good sign yeah he's actually never even averaged more than five the most he's ever averaged is 4.7 so it's a massive massive increase and uh, like i said that's just one of the ones that i i look at and it stands out to me as unsustainable so we'll see if that is uh, sustained i have one more 
if you feel like the Suns are getting shafted by the refs, well, <laughs> you're you're kind of right in that they are second in the NBA in fouls. They've they've fouled the second most of any team, second only to Orlando. This is an interesting one where is it entirely reputation based? I think a lot of the 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 times the announcers at least with uh, K Ray and EJ will bring up that the Suns do not have a defensive reputation and they think that that is the reason they're getting called for fouls that maybe some other teams won't get called for. Uh, I think that's partially true, but I also think they've just been fouling a lot. <laughs> you know, well, they just have. What happens, you pressure the ball. You're trying to get deflections. You're trying to play the passing lanes. Natural byproduct of that is you're reaching in. Sometimes you're legitimately reaching in. I think the post defense maybe is a little bit different, but there too, Aaron Baines... Being your starting center is a guy who traditionally his role has been to come in for like 15 minutes and use up his six fouls. Yeah. So I I don't know. I, I don't I don't totally see it so far. And like people were complaining about the refs after that Denver game. But the number of I just can't care about the way the refs officiated that game all that much when Denver blew throughout that game, probably five or six open layups. Like there were so, there were so mm-hmm. many opportunities that Denver gave the Suns to win, regardless of the officiating that uh, I, I can't really say that the Suns are getting shafted. I think that that was the only game that I think frustrated me, referee-wise. I think there were just a lot of bad calls that you could point sure, at. Sure, sure, uh, but I, I didn't think, think it was one-sided bad calls. Yeah, yeah, that's fair, actually. There were a lot of bad calls on the Nuggets as well. It's just a badly officiated game overall. I think maybe they favored the Nuggets a little bit. Sacramento game, fine. That one was fine. Uh, the Clippers game particularly was a good example of reputation. I think even though Patrick Beverly fouled out with six fouls, he could have had eight or nine. (laughs) Like he plays incredibly physically and because of his reputation, he is allowed to do that. So, you know, that is sort of one of the things that you can point at and say, well, there's an example of that in practice. And um, yeah, maybe going forward, if the Suns can continue to play good defense, maybe the refs will get it in their heads a little more that this team is different. And, uh, when it's one way or the other on a call, maybe they'll fall our way a little bit more, but I don't expect that to happen anytime soon. But if it felt like they were getting a lot of fouls, it's because they were. You're right. Mm-hmm. To talk about this, though, there's been three games. Now, we talked about this first 10-game stretch as one of the most difficult of the season because of how many great teams that we're playing to start this this season now, Golden State Warriors might be an actual shit team, so we'll see if that's actually a fact. But And I think they're twice in the first 10 games or something. But what I want to know from you is, does this recalibrate your expectations? Does this start, change what you expect out of this team going forward? The blueprint for the playoffs, and I know I'm saying the word playoffs after three games, but the blueprint for the playoffs for any West team, not the Suns, is to beat bad teams... And to keep it really close against good teams with a chance to win at the end of the game. That's not just the Suns. That's the blueprint for the Warriors. That's the blueprint for the Denver Nuggets. That's the blueprint for the Lakers and the Clippers. That's how you get to the playoffs. Through three games, they've done that. How much of this do you believe is sustainable going forward? How much of it do you think is just a good start to the season? And we'll <laughs> see what it does when now that we're missing Rubio. We'll see what happens now that Aiton's out, which we barely talked about, by the way. Um... What do you think? Are your expectations now recalibrated going forward for this team? Recalibrated as in, do I have a little more faith that the Suns can maybe 
uh, outperform my initial expectations, especially when DeAndre Ayton comes back, I think I could say that. But you have to... Uh, it's small sample size, and you have to point out that for every team like the Kings last year, uh, I want to point out the Memphis Grizzlies two years ago, who started their season 5-1. and one. In those first six games, they beat Houston twice, they beat Golden State, they beat New Orleans, they beat Dallas. Uh, two years ago in the NBA, no easy teams there. And uh, what record did they finish with? They finished 22-60. and 60. So it's too early. <laughs> it's too early to recalibrate and say we're going to the playoffs. Yeah. It's way too early for that. I've been super impressed with their play so far. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's just too early for any of that. So if you want to know my thoughts on Aiton, I did a long Twitter thread online. You can find that. You can read about what I think about DeAndre Aiton being suspended. But basketball-wise, and I'm very disappointed in him. That's the main thought. Basketball-wise, the problem with DeAndre Ayton being suspended for this team is not that, that we're automatically bad. We have The Suns have a lot of good players that can fill in the roles and they can be okay. But the depth is damaged badly. The fact that a player is out for 25 games that is not injured is the biggest problem with him being gone. Now, if we do have an injury, if the team does sustain an injury, the depth is hurt. It's very badly hurt. And for them to actually be able to succeed, if that does happen, it's going to be very difficult going forward. So I think with DeAndre Ayton being out, that's the only thing that is sort of tempering my expectations. If the team played this well with DeAndre Ayton in for the next 25 games, if they did that well against Denver and if they beat the Clippers in the same fashion, I think my expectations would be higher. I think that I would look at this team and say, at least for the players and from their perspective, they should only be talking about the playoffs. For us, no, maybe not. But maybe saying something like maybe they can get closer to 40 wins is possible. But for I think sure. With DeAndre Ayton being out, it's just it's hard for me to believe that that will happen because it's just so difficult in the West. And the fact that our depth is hurt that badly without an injury, that's to me what makes it really hard. And now Rubio, we don't know how long Rubio will be out, I guess. That's another problem. Yeah, for to, to use maybe the corniest phrase of all time, it's a make-or-miss league. And the longer that Aiton is out, the problem that that creates for the rest of the offense is that there's really not a pick-and-roll finisher on this entire roster. We talked about at the start of the episode, that means you're going to rely on more threes. So if the Suns can shoot consistently like they did last night where they shot 40% from three, I firmly believe that they can beat anybody. But if they shoot like they did against Denver and Denver plays even an average game for Denver, uh, because I don't think it was just the Suns locking them down on defense as much as it was also Denver having a nightmare of an offensive performance for them, that should have been a blowout. For the Nuggets, if the Nuggets were, if we're being honest with ourselves and the Nuggets are really playing like we're used to seeing them play based on last season, yes, some credit uh, is deserved for the, is due for the Suns for doing a decent defensive job, but that easily could have been a blowout. So I just think, you know, as we come and we're going to see more of these tough teams on the Mm -hmm. schedule starting this week with teams Mm -hmm. like Utah and uh, one tough team. One tough team with teams like Utah and arguably Golden State. I don't know if they're a tough team or not anymore. They're they're currently getting obliterated by the Oklahoma City Thunder. But um, they're going to be more tough teams because this is the Western Conference. And I can't say that I have full faith uh, in them to, to deliver results like this on a consistent basis. Yeah, yeah. I think to summarize, for, and for both of us, if you, if you don't mind me speaking for you here, 
we're both we both believe there are reasons to be more optimistic than we were before the season began, but it's too early <laughs> to know exactly what this team is going to look like down the stretch. But I think if they can stay healthy uh, without DeAndre Ayton, they have a chance to win more games without him than I think I would have anticipated had you told me DeAndre Ayton was going to miss 25 games to start this season. I think they are in better better position to win games than I would have anticipated. And I've been very impressed with these players. And, and I think for them to, to really sustain this stretch and to win games at a high rate... That means Kelly Oubre has to be excellent. That means Frank Kaminsky has to be excellent. And somehow Aaron Baines has to stay healthy and stay out of foul trouble, essentially, because he's huge on this team. And and for a lot of the centers, there's a lot better centers. I think we the center position was going away. That's what everyone thought. But it's back. <laughs> there's a lot of good centers back in the NBA, and Aaron Baines needs to stay healthy. So coming up, Utah on Monday. For a lot of you, that's tomorrow if you're listening to this, or today if you're listening to this on Monday. Um, Golden State Warriors on Wednesday who are up and down and that'll be in a very interesting game. I think that'll be an interesting test for both them and us and, and, and we'll see what that looks like. And then on Saturday we have the Memphis Grizzlies who are a young and up and coming team. And if this team is as good as we believe they can be, they should beat Memphis. That's just, that's just how it works. If they're going to be a good team, that Memphis game should be a team that the Suns handle without it being close. Um, so do you have any thoughts quickly on those uh, three games? Two and one this week. Two let's, and one. Uh, let's say two and one. Yeah, like Golden State's interesting. I mean, you really look at their roster. I think people are still scared of them because it's natural to be scared of uh, arguably three all-stars and Steph Curry, D'Angelo Russell, and Draymond Green. But uh, just in their opener, because they haven't finished this game against the Thunder yet as we're recording this, if you look at their the box score of their first game, you got guys like uh, Eric Pascal shot 13 times jordan Poole had 13 shots glenn robinson had 10 shots jacob evans had nine shots i mean these are players that i think uh, if you ask casual nba fans they would struggle to know who the fuck any of these guys were and that's really the entire golden state roster now so i mean i talked about Kawhi leonard getting the devin booker treatment steph curry's getting the devin booker treatment Uh, i think it's very clear how you game plan for them because draymond is not going to give you any offense at this point in his career because he kind of never gave you any offense in the first place um so golden state's an interesting matchup i think they can probably win there um i think the the grizzlies they should win so i'm gonna i'm gonna write that down as a win in my prediction and then it's just the Jazz, who are the NBA's best defensive team, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, they've been, they've been an interesting team so far. I think Mike Conley maybe hasn't performed like people anticipated he would out of the, out of the gate, but that kind of makes sense. <laughs> That's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just makes sense, right? You're a point guard. It takes a little bit of time to, to figure things out, I think. But that Utah game is at home. Uh, Golden State game is away. And I think that Memphis game is also away. Uh, so, you know, it's nice that the toughest team they play in Utah, <laughs> sorry to Golden State fans, but the toughest team they play in Utah is the one that's home. And uh, I'm gonna, I might try and make that game, actually. And I think to Suns fans that are going, let's try and get a Valley Boys chant. I'd like to hear a Valley Boys chant on the broadcast. I want people to hear it. I want people to get used to that uh, being this mantra for this team. And shout out to Christian Kirk from the Arizona Cardinals for wearing a Valley Boys shirt before the Arizona Cardinals game. It's nice that it's sort of spreading uh, beyond the Phoenix Suns and becoming more of a uh, Arizona-embraced thing going forward. So we will be back. Unless something crazy happens in one of these three games, we will be back 
either next Sunday or Monday morning, depending on what time we record next Sunday. But uh, this season, Sunday records, Monday morning-ish releases. So we'll be back next week, hopefully uh, with a six, or I guess it would be four and two uh, record, which is what well, Sam you didn't, is predicting. You, you didn't give your projection. What do you think? Um, I think that two and one is fair. Uh, I think it's hard to it's hard to predict anything beyond two and one. Uh, because of how well they've played so far, it'd be hard for me to say that they're going to lose. Based on what we've seen from Golden State, it'd be hard for me to predict a loss there, and it'd be hard for me to predict a loss uh, with Memphis because Memphis is just a really young team playing a whole bunch of young players. But I think there's a chance that Memphis can just get hot and, and kill us. And of course, Golden State, you have Steph Curry. So um, I prefer to remain confident in this team in what they've done so far and I really hope that Ricky Rubio gets to play against Utah because that's his old team, and it's always nice to see players play against their old team. By the way, we haven't talked much about Rubio because he's out, but he's shooting like 26% on the season so far. Uh, so it'd be nice to see Ricky Rubio uh, pick up his scoring offensively going forward. And it, to do that against Utah would be very satisfying. I'm just thinking about Memphis. That Memphis game is such an... Mm-hmm. There's so many narratives that could be spun yeah. out of a Suns-Memphis game yeah. because you've got, of course, Twitter darling and, and yeah. the guy I wanted, let's be honest. Brandon Clark is going to be playing in that game. And Jaron Jackson is John in that Morant, game. The guy I pictured in a Suns jersey for an entire year. John Morant is in that <laughs> yeah. game. Jaron Jackson so far is averaging 20 points and 7 rebounds. Yeah. It's only been a couple games, but he, he is probably the leader of that team. DeAnthony Melton probably won't get playing time, but he's technically there. Mm-hmm. It's just... Tons of narratives. That'll be a fun one, too. Like, Utah and Golden State are the good teams, but then Memphis, uh, Phoenix is like a, you know, a, a battle of the tanks, I suppose, even if yeah. the Suns aren't trying to tank anymore. And there was like a half hour where Kelly Oubre was on the Grizzlies as well. <laughs> yeah, Dylan Brooks. Dylan Brooks is on that team, too. Who's been good, yeah. Who's been good. There's a weird like uh, reclamation uh, storyline with James Jones going on, of course, with the Suns, but also even Dylan Brooks, who had a 30-point game. I mean, it's just an interesting thing. Maybe he's better at identifying talent than people realize, but this has already been long enough. It's been a fun, it's been a fun week, and we'll be back early next week to talk about the Suns again. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We're resilient. Um, you know, we're together. And, you know, we're just ambitious and hungry. So we got to keep it that way. It was amazing. You know, they always come through every time, you know, we play at home. And it just feels like an abundance of love. So, therefore, you know, we feel more comfortable when we make mistakes. We play through it because the crowd's still cheering. So, I mean, it means everything. Everybody coming to the games. Everybody cheering us on. It gives us life. So, absolute. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.